This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Speak. Speak's interactive workshops and curriculum supports young women to empower their voices for self-advocacy and civic participation. Activities and projects increase student confidence and their ability to express themselves in any environment. Speak is gender-informed to create equity. Their programs have reached hundreds of educators and thousands of young women worldwide. Help your students build confidence and share their ideas by connecting with Speak at edcuration.com. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. I've had at least 15 students who have increased more than four grade levels. He used theater as a tool to make great human beings. My expectations are high for all of them. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange. I've got, you know, Navy fighter pilot veterans, uh, a guy that just did, uh, he had done two tours in Iraq, a guy that was a diplomat and worked for the World Bank. So it's really powerful and, and humbling to be working alongside people like this because they just bring such fertile ground to, you know, to plant these new ideas. Susan Santone is an adjunct instructor at the University of Michigan School of Education, where she teaches courses on social justice and education reform and works with all the people she just mentioned to help them career shift into education. What an honor. Susan spent many years teaching in K-12 classrooms, first as a music teacher, then in English as a second language teacher. She transitioned to working with immigrants and refugees, and in 2019, she authored the book, Reframing the Curriculum, Design for Social Justice and Sustainability. This book compiles over two decades of experience in teacher education and curriculum reform. Through Creative Change Educational Solutions, the nonprofit she founded and led from 1999 to 2019, Susan directed teacher education and curriculum reform initiatives with clients ranging from K-12 school districts to PBS Kids to the United Nations. A lifelong artist, she's now weaving her creative talents with her educational expertise to develop fiction and nonfiction works for children. What particularly caught my eye about Susan's work is her curriculum makeovers. She wrote, what do you do if you're a teacher and everything you're passionate about is largely absent from the curriculum? I have absolutely felt that way so many times in my own teaching career, where I knew that the content I was teaching was not the most essential or impactful and not what my students most needed. I wanted to know what experiences in Susan's story fueled her passion for curriculum reform. The first one was uh, reading the book uh, Food First by Francis Moore LePay. It was an expose on world hunger and colonialism and and all of it. And that was sort of my gateway issue. Like I said, I was a music education major. And when I read that, I I was, you know, very naive about you know, world history, geography, why do we have poverty, why we have inequality? And when I read that, it was just the the thing that stuck with me was that, okay, we're exporting food from countries where people are going hungry. And I just couldn't 
I couldn't accept that. I couldn't get over that. It was very naive. I understand a lot of that food is, you know, export commodities, which is different than, you know, the tr traditional foods people might have been growing to eat. I, you know, I understand that now, but I was so obsessed with that. I couldn't let it go that this is so wrong. And that's what really said, okay, no, I, I have this background in education, albeit in, in music. I've got to, I've got to pursue this now. So that was really the first issue that launched the change in my life direction. Uh, beyond that, um, you know, for example, when I learned about redlining and race-based housing policies, that came into my courses and my curriculum. Um, when I was learning about in my own community here, you know, during the housing boom and the suburban sprawl and the impacts that that was having, I actually worked with the county government on a regional land use um, curriculum, and we involved teachers from all across the region. So as I found out about, learned more and more about these issues, it's like, well, this one's connected. No, now we have to do this one. And it was, it was just this sort of exploding web that's great because it's an exploding web, but it's also really difficult because it's an exploding web. It's an exploding web. And there's so much. Yeah. You know, and one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And you think, we, are, we need to be teaching our kids about this. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so I, I saw... You know, I was subbing in the Chicago public schools, and this was when I was just starting to like say, "Hey, what's wrong with this picture?" I went to you know private Catholic schools for twelve years, so I'm you know I'm subbing in a school in the you know an affluent part of the city. Then I'm going to a school in um, a not so affluent, a lot of the public housing, and I saw the armed guards in the in those schools and metal detectors, and I'd never experienced anything like that. And I, you know, it just made me step back and say, you know, what's going on here? And I went through a period of being, you know, very, very angry because I didn't understand it. You know, I just, something's wrong here. And I was frustrated at running into these barriers about why isn't anybody talking about this? Why isn't anybody fixing it? Of course, there were people doing that. I just hadn't discovered that arm of education yet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's no wonder those kids are struggling, not wanting to be in school or uh, who wants to, who wants to go into a building that feels so unwelcoming with arm yeah. guards and metal detectors. So I'm, I'm wondering then if that was, if some of the things that you just talked about were your vision or your impetus for founding Creative Change, the nonprofit that you led. Yeah. So by that time I found Creative Change uh, in you know, 1999 um, and by that time, I had um, a, a better understanding of, of what was going on and uh, how this might be able to, to be brought into classrooms. So I tend to be a very um, grandiose thinker, which, again, is great and, and, and your downfall, my downfall as well. Uh, so I, by that time, I thought, you know, the curriculum around sustainability and social justice can, um, you know, affect the equity issues, the opportunity issues, the engagement issues, um, lead, introduce kids to new career pathways. And so I saw it as this, um, not a panacea, but, an, but a, as an approach or a step that had so many other steps connected with it 
that it could bring all of these um, problems along, start, you know, doing more comprehensive solutions rather than, oh, we have low math scores, better reach for this math program. We have this problem over here, better reach for that. Um, I had this vision that, you know, curriculum and instruction could be supporting, you know, the proverbial whole child um, and the whole community so that we could have engaged teachers, um, passionate kids, healthier communities, um, not only with the taught curriculum, but also with, with the hidden curriculum around, you know, expectations, relationships, who or what is considered important, whose experiences are important, whether or not kids are asked to explicitly or implicitly leave their languages and cultures at the door, all of those types of things. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were moving educators more toward a much more integrated approach to instruction if I'm hearing you right. And, yes. and the, so I'm curious how that looks in a classroom, because when we talk about social justice curriculum, where does that actually fit in a student's day in a K-12 school and who teaches it and how does that work? So social justice can be, and as I talk about in the book, you know, teaching about social justice or sustainability, which means teaching about, you know, the obvious topics you know, racism, um, sexism, et cetera, uh, oppression, those types of things. So that's where the, that is the subject of instruction. So that fits, you know, obviously social studies, history, you know, language arts, looking at, you know, literature, representation, those types of things. There's also teaching through the lens of social justice. And that's where we're asking the bigger questions about who benefits are the um, benefits, barriers, and burdens um, disproportionately felt? So, for example, in science, who is being impacted by this scientific development? Looking at, for example, the Tuskegee experiment, using biology to bust the myth of the, the race gene. Didn't learn about the Tuskegee experiment in your history or science class? I'm not surprised. Here's a nutshell. Starting in 1932, 600 African-American males were recruited into a study of the progression of syphilis. They were recruited with the promise of free health care. The men were treated with only placebos even after penicillin became the recommended treatment. Researchers provided no effective care as the men died, went blind, insane, and experienced other severe health problems. Even after an investigator exposed and challenged the study in the mid-1960s, officials opted to continue with the goal of tracking participants until they died, for the purpose of the data. The study wasn't shut down until 1972. Um, I was working in a a rural white community, and they were doing a unit on water, and the teachers raised questions about, is water a right or um, a commodity? You know, so that's teaching about social justice and unfolding that never even never even mentioning the word. Uh, So I really want to bust this misconception that, you know, teaching whether about or through the lens of social justice is some charged political issue that only exists on the far left. Um, As I tell my students and, you know, as even I write my book, it's Democratic small d, not Democratic capital D. Yeah. Uh, because equal opportunity, protection and the law, that's in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So these are not very radical ideas. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate it gets spun that way. 
um, we should all, always be asking about um, who benefits, who has opportunity, who has access. And that happens not only through the top curriculum, but through what's going on in the school around, you know, for example, disproportionate discipline, disproportionate re uh, representation in, you know, remedial versus advanced courses. So it really fits anywhere. So is sustainability and social justice, I feel like in listening to you that they're interwoven and kind of inseparable. What is that, what is that intersection between social justice and sustainability? They are definitely um, inseparable. Uh, let me just step back and say that often we hear social justice as associated with you know, race, class, gender, and we hear it's just people hear sustainability as you know recycling in the environment. Environmental, yeah. Um, there, uh, so they they actually come together because I would say the root idea, one of the root ideas, is views around diversity, whether that's cultural, linguistic, social, or biological diversity. So if we see that as essential. On the ecological side, then we get biodiversity, um, you know, ecosystems that are being sustained, uh, regenerative, you know, regenerative um, agriculture, regenerative practices. On the social side, then we get inclusion, equity, opportunity, valuing diversity as an asset. The flip side of that, if we see diversity as a problem to be managed or even eliminated, on the environmental side, we get monocultures, clear cutting, degradation. On the social side, we get exclusion, um, you know, moving potentially even to, you know, eugenics. Um, so the, the root, the very, very root issue, I would say it's a mindset of domination and othering where we control the environment, we control other people, this belief that a zero sum belief that you know, only one can be on top, that humans have to dominate the environment um, versus interdependence of, you know, humans together, humans with the natural world. I want to pause for a moment on this mention of zero-sum thinking. In a zero-sum game, the resources are fixed so that one player's gain always necessitates the other player's loss. When applied to the environment or social resources, this thinking generates a scarcity mentality, which is, in part, what is causing so much division and conflict in our country right now. Zero-sum thinking always pits the proverbial us against them, taking focus from the solution to the quote-unquote opponent. You, you've spoken about the story of more, the story of better which addresses all of those things that you just talked about it off and offering a framework for educating our students about sustainability and social justice in that very integrated way. What do you mean by the story of more and the story of better? Sure. Uh, well, in the book and in all my pretty much in every program I've ever done, the, the first question is always, what's the story we want? Right. We think about the future as a story yet to be written. I introduced that metaphor. And then what's the story we want? And it's the same thing. Every it's, you know, we want healthy food, we want safe communities, we want strong families. You know, it's just it's the same thing every time with, you know, I've done this with thousands of people from all different backgrounds. So the story of more is the idea of it's a story rooted in the idea that success is about more quantity. Uh, if we look at economics, economic growth by the GDP, regardless of the costs, um, you know, domination, it's, it's a mindset of, of quantitative 
uh, measures and quantitative concepts of, of well-being. The story of better is qualitative. It's, it's stronger families, relationships, communities, healthy environments. And so it's an idea that we, we measure progress by qualitative change. Again, it comes down to these root narratives in terms of what's the story we want. Do we want a world where things are better or where there's just more? So can your book serve as sort of a handbook to take educators or even an individual teacher through some of that work that you're talking about? Yes. Um, So the first part of the book, uh, the first chapter is what's the story we want. It looks at sort of where's the world heading, sort of good and bad, and sort of sets up the problem. The next chapter goes into the story of more and the mindsets and the practices around that. Then the next chapter is the story of better, which is the contrasting narrative. Then we look at how those narratives show up in education. And then finally, armed with all of that in the last part, um, it leads the teacher, the educator, step by step through the curriculum makeover using the standards and the guiding and all of the elements that educators are used to using. I love it. And I wish I had had it when I was in the classroom, for sure. One great resource for increasing student voice and equity in your classroom is today's sponsor, Speak. Speak is a vocal empowerment organization. We support the voices of young women and girls across the globe. We focus on the physical voice, the social emotional voice, and the civic voice to ensure that young women can use their voices to effectively support themselves and their communities. Join one of our trainings to support your own voice as an educator and to learn about our free curricula and how you can support your students today. Find Speak at edcuration.com. I want to ask you about something you said in your TED Talk. You um, talked about the story of change in your TED Talk, and you made this provocative observation that brought tears to my eyes that although what we most want is for our children to be happy, um, schools aren't accountable for making our kids happy. They're accountable for test scores. Mm -hmm. And it just breaks my heart because surely it's possible to do both. Is it Mm -hmm. possible to do both? Sure. When I mean happy, I mean um, sort of the proverbial happy, happily ever after building on that story metaphor. So we're talking about well-being. We're talking about thriving. So we're not just talking about you know, coddling kids to make them feel good, you know, while they're in school. We're talking about bigger outcomes. We want them to be thriving. Yes. In all the ways. Yes. And so um, there are, there are many, many ways uh, that we can do this. And that's been um, one of the, probably the key message I've been trying to get across in my work. This is not a trade-off. So um, for example, are we building instruction around issues of personal and social significance? Are we building instruction around topics and issues that kids care about? Um, are we engaging them emotionally? Are we connecting it to place? Are we enabling students to see themselves as co-actors and co-creators of this evolving story? Now, um, maybe that sounds like, oh, well, you know, we're leaving the standards you know, you know, at the, you know, at the wayside and we're just going off and turning kids into, you know, activists who really don't have any academic basis. And I would say it's exactly the opposite. When you put these challenges forth and the standards are embedded, the kids are going to rise to the challenge like you've never seen because we can't solve 
climate change. We can't, the kids can't think about how to make uh, their neighbors healthier and look at food access unless you really know the geography and the math and the science and the language. So it's not either or, it's both and. And in fact, one really can't happen without the other. When teachers are going through the professional development, there's this huge sigh of relief that, oh, it's not either or. And then again and again, it's like, oh, my kids were so engaged. We met more standards than we ever thought possible. Um, you know, behavior issues improved, the class community improved. And so unfortunately, I think education is often very siloed. And so it's, you know, we have to improve scores on this, these set of standards. So we look for this drill and kill program and it's often a putting out fires approach. And that's not a, a condemnation of educators. I think that's the, the policies put people in that position. Yeah, because they feel cornered. They no educator wants that. Right. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, wow, another day of bubble tests. You know, nobody wakes up saying that. Um, so it's, you know, and that gets, then that, you know, moves further up into the policy issues and why are educators put in that situation? Yeah. And you're speaking from experience because you've done this with your own classrooms and with your own students and you're now, and then you went, moved on to do it with other teachers and other educators in their classroom. Tell us some of your success stories. Talk about some of the things that your students or some of the teachers that you've worked with have accomplished through this approach. So through Creative Change, we would work with, you know, districts on, you know, one to two year initiatives. So um, Oberlin, Ohio, uh, which is the home of David Orr. He's a esteemed environmental educator. They had a community-wide initiative um, where they were integrating sustainability and social justice, and it was so embedded with the community. They were looking at community food systems, localized solar energy, um, and they were embedding it all with Common Core, the IB curriculum, as well as additional Ohio standards. Um, and it was just seamless and, and, you know, and beautiful. And they had a lot of support. Uh, another example is in, you know, northern rural Minnesota, uh, Proctor, Minnesota, outside of Duluth. And again, so this is a, a rural white community. So to emphasize the point that this is not, you know, sort of a some sort of left wing urban agenda. So up there, um, it's very forested. Uh, maple syrup is a big part of the local economy. And the local forests had a lot of invasive species that were crowding out, you know, the, the syrup producing trees. And so the kids worked with the local university to sort of do a survey of the biodiversity and the invasive species to calculate how might that impact the maple syrup economy. You know, while the school is getting wind turbines and creating vocational ed programs around that. I mean, it was it was just amazing. And then shout out to my own local community. Um, they had a humanities course, which combined history and language arts. So it was like 60 kids, two teachers. And they did the whole uh, thing around anti-discrimination, human rights and social justice in the U.S. So they were reading, um, you know, Raisin in the Sun and important, you know, black literature. And they were looking at race based housing loans and and sort of segregation and white flight. This is one of the most segregated areas. And the kids, seventh graders are saying, gee, Ypsilanti is, is 30% black, but 70% white, but the schools are the opposite. What's up with that? Meanwhile, Common Core writing scores on their analytical essays went up 95%. 
you know, so just just like um, mind blowing. The next year they did uh, they did a similar thing around ancient history. They looked at the rise and fall of ancient civilizations and then look compared that to what's going on with climate change. So the Nile dried up in ancient Egypt. What happened there? What's going to happen when water levels in the Great Lakes change? Right. Um, kids asking questions around social inequality in the Roman Empire. And then, hey, how are the workers paid that are redoing our roads right now? Um, they had a community forum. The mayor came in, the township supervisor, the sheriff. The kids prepared questions. They had exhibits on, you know, community problem solving organizations. I mean, growth of 40 percent academically. I mean, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. That, I, I mean, I just feel like I'm bursting with hope for our future. Yeah. When I think about our students doing those kinds of projects and that kind of work and that kind of thinking. Um, so I'm thinking about the teachers who might be listening to this and wondering, how, how do I dig into that? What are the steps involved in a curriculum makeover? Uh, well, let me first say to the teachers out there, um, this is possible. Don't feel us all on your shoulders. And these examples I gave, there has to be leadership and support. So in all of these cases, there was a year-long initiative, there's professional development, there were subs who came in while I worked with the teachers. So these things are possible. Structurally, there needs to be support. So I don't want anybody to think that, oh, there's something wrong with me because I haven't been able to pull this off. Yeah, and I can't do it tomorrow. And lots, right. it sounds like a lot of collaboration between content area teams and departments, mm -hmm. which is what we want anyway to be yes. Yes. In terms of the unit makeover, um, you know, you're working with what you already have. So that's the good news. No one's asking you to throw everything out. Um, the real key is building the unit around, you know, questions of personal and social significance. Even if you're doing a novel, how do you reframe that to have more compelling questions? Um, and so that's that's sort of the plot, because, I, you know, we're thinking about your unit as an unfolding story. It's an approach that isn't a single lesson. So I really work with teachers and I'm thinking about the unit makeover and not just at the lesson level. And so we think about what's the story we want, what's at stake. And then from there, we start working on um, aligning all of that with the elements teachers already know, creating, you know, guiding questions. Only we're thinking, how do we create guiding questions that invite learners into the, to interrogate this issue, interrogate the plot, um, and create suspense and intrigue. We're aligning standards. Uh, we're aligning assessments and learning and the uh, learning activities. So a lot of those solid um, instructional design strategies don't go away. They take they're wrapped they're wrapped inside of a more significant issue, a more significant framing of an issue. So once people get into it, again, there's that huge sigh of relief that I'm already doing a lot of this. So can you, can I ask you to give just a really specific example? So I was a, an English teacher and I'm thinking of the books that I was asked to teach or that I chose to teach, you know, some of the classics. Um, so The Great Gatsby, how do you reframe that through sustainability and social justice? So that was one uh, one of the teachers did about ten years ago, and so of course that novel has themes around you know wealth and greed and inequality and and how those affect us. So they framed it with you know what makes you happy, what's the difference between value and price, 
Um, you know, is there a relationship between money and happiness? And there's actually research around that. So digging into that novel um, and then continue, continuing to surface those themes, um, it went into critical media literacy around ads and messages, especially in, you know, middle school and high school where there's so much pressure to look a certain way, have certain things, and really trying to break through that. And then uh, this was in a very wealthy school district and some of the kids were going to have um, uh, like a prom dress swap or contests where they make prom dresses out of existing clothes and duct tape. And so it really got into this. The kids really took ownership of, you know, breaking through this idea that, you know, um, certain experiences should be based on how much money you have. And that doesn't mean that a nice dress isn't fun to have. That doesn't mean that at all. Or, you know, in, in no point are we demonizing the concept of money. We're really questioning the narrative that money makes you better. Money, more money always makes you happier. And let me be really clear, going back to this, when is less more, if you don't have enough clothing, food, shelter, then yeah, more definitely is better. Better. And we're not being, you know, I'm not going to be naive about that. Um, but for wealthy kids to be able to step back and question that and then think about um, how do we make our school more inclusive around socioeconomic issues all sprouted from a reframing of a novel to me is pretty cool. That is amazing. I love that. Um, so will the book help educators who haven't had the chance to work with you or or engage in any of your workshops? Will it guide them through some of that reframing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is step by step. Step Um, step. There's exercises, there's templates. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I, I closed Creative Change, because with the book out, well, if you want the approaches you know, it's it's in the book now, so it's a lot easier to access. Um, there's rubrics. There's there's everything there, so they can use this these strategies with whatever curriculum they have. But say they are in the process of searching for something new, what are some tips for making good selections around social justice and sustainability if they're choosing a new curriculum? So. You know, you really want to think about, are we bringing kids deeply into these questions? Are we having them interrogate? Are we having them look at who benefits? What are the causes? Who is impacted? As opposed to, here is an environmental lesson for Earth Day. Here is the scientist of color of the week side box in the science textbook. Are kids really able to use the curriculum in authentic ways? And is there autonomy, some autonomy for the teacher? Is the content really relevant to students' lives? Can it be made relevant? Are there ways to open the doors into students' experiences into ways that aren't stereotypical and trite? So I want our listeners to know um, the other side of you. You're also an artist and an illustrator, and you've actually moved, you you were saying earlier, you've actually kind of moved into that as your full-time work now, um, that you're not running creative change anymore. And so I'm assuming that you address all of these similar themes in your children's books and your other mediums. A lot of this work is also around beauty and enjoyment. What's the story we want? I want a beautiful community. I want to be surrounded by beauty. I want peace. I want, uh, you know, I want enjoyment. So that's that's very much part of it as well. Um, in terms of nonfiction, I'm pitching some works that are based on some of the curriculum. 
Um, so it will definitely have those themes. And then in terms of fiction, I'm, I'm working on a, a young adult um, speculative fantasy novel that definitely has environmental and social justice themes. Um, a farcical picture book that pokes some fun at, um, you know, overconsumption and, and mm. often the arrogance that can go along with it. And then some of my works are just fun. Susan, it's been a delight to talk to you today. And I've, I'm so grateful that you said yes to this interview and took the time to share all of these resources. Thank you for the great work you're doing in the world, really. Well, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate your interest in this and, and the opportunity and uh, appreciate all your organization is doing to really connect teachers and educators with really high quality materials. Um, we don't have any time to waste. Susan's book is Reframing the Curriculum, Design for Social Justice and Sustainability. And you can find it on Amazon, Rutledge, Barnes & Noble, and of course at susansantone.com, where you can also access a facilitator's guide to help engage your peers in a workshop or a discussion group. You're going to want to check out her website anyway. There are rubrics, various tools, and other goodies there, and you'll find all of these links in the episode notes. You'll also find a link to today's sponsor, Speak. Olympia Crystal, a high school senior from Boulder, Colorado, who's been in Speak programs for five years, shared, vocal empowerment is something I look forward to every week. We're so open with each other and we have been able to grow together in using our voices. We use our voices as ourselves, but also as a community. Find speak at edcuration.com and while you're there, check out our other episodes, our webinar series, our explorations, free micro professional learning for educators, and our certified ed trustees program that helps you pilot and try resources for free before you buy. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful for a star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to keep bringing you great content. We hope you'll join us again next week here on the Ed Curation Podcast where we're reshaping learning.